0: marriage is a glorious thing, but it's hard. That's just the reality of life. It's a burning joy and and strength, and it's also blood, sweat, and tears. It's filled with humbling defeats and exhausting victories. The only phrase that most of us truly understand in that passage where where, uh, Paul is talking about uh, marriage in Ephesians chapter five verses 31 and 32, is that part right right towards the beginning of verse 32, where it says, "This is a profound mystery. You, you come after a long, hard day of, of working at this marriage thing, feeling maybe sometimes like you're the only one that's been working at it, and you fall down on your pillow at night and you just have to sigh and say, "This successful marriage thing is a profound mystery." At times, our marriages feel like unsolved puzzles with all the puzzle pieces laying around, and you might even be afraid that some of the most important pieces have been lost for good. And yet, there's no relationship between humans that is more significant or greater or more important than the marriage relationship. Uh, Joelle and I met when she was a student at Souls West. I say she was a student because I was a teacher there. Um, we, I was young, so. Um, <laughs> we, didn't, we, we didn't have eyes for each other. It wasn't love at first sight. It took us a couple years, which was the length of the time that she was there at this Bible college. Um, took us a couple years before we really started to notice each other. And then it wasn't until after the school was out that uh, I asked her out. And that was mostly because I didn't have the courage. And it took me a long time to think, oh, she might actually say yes if I ask. And so I did. I asked, and she said yes. That was the day she said yes. Um, It it took me, I don't know, maybe four other young ladies telling me, you should just ask her. We know she'll say yes. But finally I did. And a year later, we were married. And that was an exciting experience. And if you've been married or are married, then uh, you might remember that time before marriage where you you just thought that marriage was going to be all this wonderful stuff, and it was gonna be great. I mean, you have all these expectations about what this bond of marriage will mean for your relationship, for your life, for fulfillment. Um, And then reality hits, and you realize that you are two imperfect people trying to figure each other out. And like everybody, Joelle and I have had our learning curve. Um, Those first years of marriage felt like it was pretty vertical a relational learning curve. And, uh, and, but we're still growing even today. It's, it's still a big learning curve. And we had lots of shared experiences. One of the most profound and life-changing experiences was getting pregnant and having a baby. Um, and the first one was Adeline, of course. Isn't she cute? She's still cute. I didn't ask permission for my kids if I could show these pictures. Sorry about that. I did ask Joelle. And then we had Maxwell. Children are a blessing, and they do change the marriage relationship, but they are not a replacement. They're not a substitute for the oneness that God designed in marriage. If, if you have a struggle in your marriage and you're like, hey, you know, let's have a baby, that's not going to solve the problem. Uh, babies reveal your selfishness even more than marriage did at the very beginning, right? Um, you, you find that you need God. You don't just need a baby. Um, and Joel and I, we've had a lot of growing experiences in our lives, a lot of, of maturing as we've had kids and we've grown with kids, and they can tell you we're still figuring out how to be parents. Um, and and every, every day, every year, we learn a little bit more about what it's like to be married. and We, lo- we learn what love genuinely is. I don't know what your story is, um, but uh, as we explore this uh, second in a series called Beginnings. Um, we, we started with Adam, and then the next thing that happens after Adam is marriage. And so we're, we're talking about sacred union today, the marriage relationship that God designed. And you gotta ask the question, why? Why are we talking about marriage? Because there's people here that aren't married, lots of people. In fact, there's children like mine who aren't even imagining marriage yet. There's young people um, that are wishing that they could be at the point of marriage today. Um, there's, um, There's people who have declined to pursue marriage. There's people who have experienced broken marriage and divorce. And there's people who have had their marriage union end through the death of their loved spouse. So why talk about marriage in a diverse audience like this? Why not say just, you know, to the married people, let's go aside and talk about marriage? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. First of all, um, we have a, uh, a divine story to tell. And that divine story includes the story of marriage. It's, it's helpful to understand what God's story includes and how that relates to each of our lives. Um, besides, Valentine's Day is on Monday. Um, if you didn't know that, gentlemen, now is your warning. Um, Valentine's Day is on Monday. Okay, so, so that's a good thing. You know, it's, it's always helpful to mention something about marriage on Valentine's Day. Um, the, the, the next thing I would suggest is that marriage relationship is... It's a a pattern that God designed, a a oneness in relationship that God designed to filter into every other relationship in the world. And so whether you are um, thinking about marriage, wishing that you could think about marriage, um, or you're in the middle of one, or you're wishing that it never actually ever happened because it was such a bad experience, or whatever the situation you're in when it comes to marriage, God's design for marriage has an uh, hopefully positive impact on how you relate to other relationships in your life as well. And finally, um, I would say that when we talk about marriage, we're talking about the gospel. (laughs) Some of you are like, amen, my marriage is just like the gospel. And some of you are like, it's the opposite of the gospel. Well, <laughs> let's go back to the creation story, and let's see what God is, is doing here. Imagine with me, you're at the sixth day of the week. God has spoken, and the sun has come out, and he's spoken, and, and the whole earth has become verdant green. And, and he's spoken, and there's fish jumping out of the water and birds flying in the air. And then you have God on his knees, and this divine kiss Somebody told me that's not in the Bible, but I just want to ask you, how are you going to breathe into somebody's nostrils if you don't kiss them? Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> do you have this divine kiss and, and there's life and Adam sits up? Like that's the spot that we're at in the creation story. And God knows that Adam needs a partner. But Adam doesn't know that he needs a partner yet. Everything's cool. Like, I mean, he's just been created. Does he have any needs? Well, God knows he has a need. God created him with a need, but he doesn't know it yet. And so God designs this um, parade to help Adam to see his need. And in Genesis 2, verses 18 to 20, we read this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one of them. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. I think it's kind of fun that God He shows Adam his need. And when you think about it, Adam's got this emotional need, a deep emotional need built into him, and God designed him with that need. What what emotional needs do you have? What are the things that are deep inside you, the longings, the pains, the hurts, the the loneliness? What's inside your heart? God sees that need. He even designed you with that need. And in Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, some would like to suggest that, and I would like to say this, that God created us with with innate needs, but but he he says desires of your heart. And I, I think some wanted to say that our desires, God will give us our desires when our desires match his, right? And I'd say, no, we are God's children and he designed us each. And he created us unique, and he loves that we have desires and needs, and he has a desire to fill those needs in us. He says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will fulfill your needs. So God places a desire in Adam's heart, and then he fulfills that desire. God himself makes himself responsible for fulfilling Adam's need. So in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The fact that Eve was created after Adam does not suggest that she was less than Adam. Some say that um, God saved the best for last, right? Mankind was the last of his creations, and womankind was even laster. <laughs> there, there, there's, there's something about stopping when you hit perfection, right? You know, uh, I don't, I, we could go on about that. It doesn't suggest that, he, that women were made less than men because they were made after men, or that they were less than man because they're made from a man's rib. And and in fact, in Genesis 1, verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. There's a a unity in their likeness of God. God in his wisdom created man and woman equal in his sight. And together in marriage, they would reflect the oneness that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit share in in their divine unity. And it's this, you have to recognize that while um, the equality, you might say, is there, sameness isn't there. They're, they're different, and they're obviously different. Um, if you didn't notice it before, the Bible says they were naked and not ashamed, which means they could tell they were different. There is male and there is female. God's, these, these differences weren't um, contradictory though, they're complementary. And they're kind of like puzzle pieces, where, where each piece fits the other in design, God-designed gaps. And, and together, as a, two puzzle pieces do, they would make a picture of God's divine plan. The Bible says that Eve, in verse 18 of chapter 2, Eve would be a helper fit for him. And and the word helper doesn't suggest that Adam was the CEO of the earth and Eve was his uh, administrative assistant. That's not the, the, the situation that God designed here. In fact, Psalm 46 verse 1 uses that very same word helper to talk about God. It says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's a divine name and he gave it to Eve. Women are created with divine attributes to meet the divine needs that God created in men. And vice versa, men are created with divine attributes that God has created to fill the needs that he gave to women. We, we are designed to fit together. And so the, on the evening of the sixth day, God presents Eve to Adam, like a, like a father walking his daughter down the aisle He brings Eve out of the woods and and presents her in this beautiful garden setting to Adam in the first garden wedding that ever was, which makes you think if maybe it's better to get married in the garden than in the church, but that's a a subject for another time. And and when he sees this woman, he breaks out in this beautiful poetry of commitment. And uh, in Genesis 2.23, he says, at last... This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. He sees all these other animals that they have partners and he doesn't have one. He recognizes his need. God himself fills that need and he says, at last. And Hebrew experts say that Adam's response was this thrilled, joyous astonishment. Finally, I have somebody like me, somebody that can be my companion. Everything in the text proclaims that marriage next to our relationship with God, of course, is the most profound relationship there there is. Learning to know God takes time. We all know that. It's, it's not an instantaneous thing, you pick up the Bible and suddenly you understand everything. <laughs> right, it, it takes some time and effort, and intentionality. And it's also true that keeping your relationship strong with your spouse and learning about them takes time and effort and intentionality. If all had continued as it was in the Garden of Eden, then we would be having a different conversation today. But it didn't, the the fall happened, they first uh, Eve and then Adam took this fruit. They decided that they would figure out what uh, doing life without God was. And as a result, they started doing things that weren't good for a relationship. He pointed the finger at her, That woman that you gave me, God, she pointed the finger at some snake. That snake made me do it, deceived me. They blamed each other. They ran away in shame. They hid themselves from each other and from God. Um, Sin broke, not just the relationship with God, but broke their marriage, too. And it's true that we all bring brokenness into our marriage, and that's probably why in the last 40 years, we've seen a dramatic change in marriage. The landscape of relationships in our world has changed, especially in the United States over the last 40 years. The divorce rate today is twice what it was in 1960, and baby boomers, those who are 60 and older, are divorcing at a much higher rate than any other generation. And that's, that's probably true partly because, um, well, I'll, I'll t- say this one other uh, point, Christians are also divorcing at a higher rate than non-Christians. And both of those statistics are probably because there are fewer people getting married today than ever before. In 1970, 89% of births were to married parents. Today, only 60% of births are to married couples. And if you stretch that out a few years, there's only 18% of families in the United States that fit the um, first marriage with children pattern. 18%. 18%. As of December 2021, there are just 23 million American homes with the nuclear family. That's the fewest number since 1959. And, and our population has grown quite a lot since 1959. One of the biggest reasons for this decline, of course, isn't uh, divorce, but just delaying marriage. In 1950s, a woman would be, on average, marrying at about 20 and a half years old. Um, today, that number is closer to 28 and a half. And of those who do marry, um, men are marrying in their 30s. 30.4 is the average today. According to the Daily Mail, Americans are living alone at a much higher rate than they ever have before. Nearly 37 million adults live alone today. Only 50% of American adults live with a spouse. That's down from 87% 87% who lived with a spouse back in the 1960s. Do you see the picture? The landscape of marriage is changing. People don't see it as a bit of heaven on earth. In fact, a lot of people are looking at marriage and they think that sounds like more like hell than anything else in the National Marriage Project conducted in a study in 2002. um, It was titled, Why Men Won't Commit. Men answered the question of why they're not getting married and they said there's quite a few different things that they suggested, but one of them was they faced few social pressures to marry. Very, very few pressures are saying marriage is a good thing. They're more willing to live together before or without marriage than to marry. Uh, they can get sex easily without marriage, so what's the point? And they want to avoid the, fall, the financial fallout from divorce. Why get married if you know you're going to get divorced? But here's the one I want to focus on. They're waiting for the perfect soulmate. I apologize, my, my nose is still a little bit runny from being sick this week. Sorry about that. He turned my mute button off, so I couldn't mute myself. Um, <laughs> waiting for the perfect soulmate. Um, th- there's a bunch of answers that you could look up the study if you want to, but, but let's just focus on this one idea. Because it, it, it used to be that marriage was um, me transforming into us. But today we have the me marriage. And, and this kind of highlights that emphasis. Marriage is about fulfilling me and my desires. And, and so uh, a man, uh, one man said that um, he wants a compatible spouse. And a, a compatible spouse is someone that, that doesn't require me to change. Let, let's just take a, a straw poll vote here, ladies. Um, how many men do you think there are in the world? I mean, how many of you think there are any men in the world that don't require a bit of uh, fixing? Are there any, any men... Anybody thinks that there's no men that require no fixing at all? And that's the reality. We, we all know that we're broken people that need to grow. And, and, and even if you're not broken, you don't like that word. Um, some people don't like to like to think about it that way. The, the reality is that we're growing up. No matter how old we are, hi, Juliana, we're growing up. And we require maturing and learning, and if we ever stop that process, then what happens is we die, or at least we begin the process of dying. We, we are always in that maturing process, and if we've, we, we can't fail to recognize that and have a successful relationship. And if you have somebody who's imperfect, who requires change, then what you, don't, what you should not be looking for is uh, compatibility that doesn't require change. What you should be looking for is somebody who is safe to grow with. You see the difference between those two things? The perfect soulmate who doesn't require me to change versus the, the person that will be safe for me to grow with. No two people will ever be perfectly compatible because everybody is broken by sin. And it's true that life would be easier if you marry somebody that has similarities with you. The, you know, the, the saying is that opposites attract, but similarities hold you together. Um, if you have a, a social butterfly that just loves being in, in, in public and hanging out with people and spending time with people, and, and then they marry this... Um, hermit that, that just can't even get out of the house without social anxiety, then you're going to have some struggles. Life is not going to be easy for you too, right? You, you have to have some similarities, but, but you shouldn't be expecting that, that life in a marriage will have no need for compromise because they're always going to do what you want. That's ridiculous, narcissistic, and problematic. Uh, marriage All relationship requires compromise, and I know, I know, we're Christians and we don't compromise. Not true. We don't compromise on matters of faith where God says, thus says the Lord, but we do compromise at every stage of our life, in every place in our life, in every decision that we make. We either compromise or we break relationship because compromise is part of good, healthy relating to people. You can't go through life without negotiating um, and, and, and figuring out calendars and saying, sure, I'll do that, and uh, would you please help with, like, that process is required for healthy relationship. And, and that's one of the things that makes relationships hard. We have to, we have to give of ourselves, not, not just get. Relationships are about a mutual sharing of life. And, and they're harder than most things. Marriage is a difficult thing. How many NBA players were born professional basketball players? Just innate talent. They could, they could play with LeBron James without any trouble. LeBron is a basketball player, right? <laughs> I talk about things that I don't know about. Um, uh, raw talent is not enough to get into the National Basketball Association. It's not enough to get into the NFL or to, to, to be a, a fantastic um, uh, Olympic champion uh, tennis player or whatever it is. You have to have diligent Uh, learning and growth and effort and lots of practice. You have to put your effort into it in order to be one of these things. Raw talent doesn't make a great writer, and and it doesn't make a great musician, no matter how good you are. I I heard recently that uh, Juilliard um, has, has said that the best musicians that come into the program don't usually succeed as much as the less um, raw talent, kind of musicians that come in, but work really, really hard. Sometimes innate talent makes you think that you you don't have to do the work, and the truth is that anything good requires effort, and it, it requires grit, some stick-to-itiveness, some determination, some patience. and And this is why the Bible says that it describes marriage as a lifelong contract. You can't have a successful marriage that has a, um, we'll see how it goes kind of contract. You have, if you want unity, if you want oneness, then you have to enter marriage knowing that it's it's never going to be on the table that you're going to say, we're done. Now, there are circumstances in which that marriages should be done. When the contract is broken so badly, it can never be repaired. It's understandable, but it's not the design. The design is that you say yes to each other. We're going to share our life together. We're going to love each other. We're going to have and hold each other. We're going to avoid all others. Not avoid, but, you know, no no other contracts like this in my life. Just you and me. And that way it's safe. It's safe to open up. It's safe to be yourself. It's safe to grow together. But let me ask you this. What if God did not design marriage to make you happy? What if that was never his intention? What if God's intention for marriage was to make you holy? God didn't create marriage for personal pleasure. He didn't create it to populate the earth or to rear children or socialize them properly. God didn't create marriage just for those things. He had a bigger idea in mind. God made marriage as a holy place, a relationship that proclaims his love to the world. Have you ever heard of the the story about about how the Temple Mount was uh, decided, how God figured out where he would put the temple? It's a fable, you might say, but a rabbinical story goes something like this Two brothers worked a common field, and they shared a common mill. And each day they would go and do their work and put their grain in their, in their um, granaries. And um, one of them was single and one of them was married with children. And so uh, each night the, the single man would say to himself, my brother, he's got all these extra mouths to feed. He needs more than I do. I'm going to take some grain to him. And he'd take some grain and put it in his granary. Well, sometime that night the married brother would think about his single brother and say, he doesn't have any kids to support him when he, um, when he can't work anymore. Um, I need to make sure he has extra, and so he takes some grain from his granary and bring it over to his brothers. And one night, they met in the middle, and each realized what the other was doing. And in love, and maybe some tears, they embraced, and laughed, and and God looked down and he saw that embrace, and he said, "This is a holy place." a place of love, and it's here that my temple shall be built. God designed marriage to be a holy place, a place where the two come together, bump into each other, doing good for each other and loving each other, and and God says, this is holy. It's no wonder that God uses marriage as a picture of his church. In Isaiah 62, 5, he says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom in Matthew 9, and he pictures the kingdom of heaven as a wedding banquet in Matthew 22. Uh, And at the culmination of human history in Revelation chapter 19, he says that that, um, there's this wedding of the lamb and his bride, and it says that the bride has made herself ready. According to this concept, reconciliation is the highest aim of marriage to bring back into relationship is the highest goal. A married couple displays, while imperfectly at best, the commitment between Christ and the church. A married couple um, expresses what this love is really supposed to be like. And you read about it there in Ephesians chapter five where he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. There's all kinds of good stuff in there. Um, don't live at your parents' house after you've gotten married is one of them. Um, The two shall become one flesh, this unity, this connectedness, right? Um, And he's quoting Genesis. Um, But then Paul takes this another step. It says, this is a profound, this mystery is profound. It's hard to understand. But he says, I speak, I'm talking about Christ and the church, the mystery that marriage is supposed to open up is the mysterious love, the self-sacrificing, self-giving love of Christ in his love for the church and the church in their love for Christ. What did Jesus, the divine husband, do for his church? How did he relate to his church? He poured out himself, gave everything, all the riches in heaven, everything that he had, he poured out for us. It takes a lot to give yourself to somebody like that. Not, not just, I mean, it's your time, it's your money, it's your plans, right? Everything is on the line when you marry somebody. They have the opportunity to take it all out from under you, to totally sabotage your life. It, it's a sacrifice to give yourself that way. And in fact, Jesus, he didn't just pour out all of heaven. He gave his very life and his church, the one that he loved murdered him. That's the kind of love that God had for his church and that Paul says is illustrated in the marriage relationship. Jesus' sacrifice, his service to us, it gives us an opportunity that we didn't have without that service. It's an opportunity for love. In fact, the Bible says we love because he first loved us. His self-sacrificing love creates the, the, the space, the opportunity for us to be saved. And without that, there is no reconciliation with God. There's no opportunity for the gospel. No good news could have come unless Jesus had had this kind of self-sacrificing love. And I would like to suggest that marriage can either be a bit of heaven on earth or it could be hell. And it all depends on what you're bringing to the marriage. Is this a me marriage, or is this me pouring myself out for the marriage? When God designed marriage, he saw this relationship between Christ and the church. He, he knew Jesus was the lamb that was crucified before the foundation of the earth, Right? God knew that this was going to happen and he designed the marriage to reflect the relationship between God and the church even before the sin problem had ever occurred. Um, Do you and your spouse live for your own glory? Do you live, do this marriage thing for your own pleasure? Or do you do it for Jesus. See, the question isn't, what's my need or what will make me happy? The the bigger question is, what will make Jesus happy? What does Jesus want? If we were to live our marriage with the same idea of how God relates to, to the church, what would change? How would we relate to each other differently? Rather than asking, how can I get the most for myself? We can start asking, what is it that Jesus asks of me? That is Christianity. This is the gospel story. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And that's God's design. I, I owe it to Jesus. If you think about it, there is no life without the cross. Not just there is no everlasting life, but there is no life We would have all ended with Adam and Eve if God had not said there will be enmity and I will send somebody, I will send my son to save you. If that didn't happen, then we would never exist. Our very life is owed to God. We owe it to him to say, how can I please you, God? What is it that you want? How can I live my life for you? My relationships aren't about fulfilling my personal desires. And, here's the thing. Adam was created with need. God designed him that way. And so are you. And God fulfilled Adam's need. And God says he'll fulfill yours too. So it's not about me. I have a need. Let me figure out how to solve it. No, it's I have a need. God knows it. Let me give it to him. You see the difference in that way that way of thinking about marriage, that mindset? God promises that he, the creator of our need, will fulfill us. And, and if you've looked at marriage, whether you're a young person considering marriage or somebody who's gone through a broken marriage or somebody who's in the middle of it, fighting the good fight, as they say, if you've looked at marriage as the solution to your problems, uh, the, the thing that will satisfy your longings and fulfill your needs and, and give you pleasure, then you're well, you already know if you've experienced it. Um, If you haven't experienced it yet, then let me tell you, you will be dissatisfied. It will not solve your problems. It will not fulfill your desires. It will not give you what you think it will. It never can. I would even suggest that before sin, it never could. Because see, it's the God who created our need who fulfills our needs. And you can never put the created thing in the place of the Creator. The Olympic National Park on the west coast of Washington is filled with these big, beautiful trees, the Sitka spruce, and they can grow to like 330 feet tall, and they can have a trunk diameter that's 16 feet or more. The spruce trees in the Olympic National Park are able to grow so big partly because they live in this lots of rainfall area. It's a temperate rainforest, I think is what they call it. And it, because it gets so much rain, it's, if, if lightning hits it, then not much happens. If a lightning strike hits a forest that doesn't have as much rain, it's got more stuff to light on fire. And so as a result, um, the, the, the forests uh, in the Cascades and the Olympic National Park, um, they get a a devastating fire in the range of every couple hundred years or more, Uh, where a typical forest in the United States is gonna get a devastating fire every 50 to 60 years. Marriages are kind of like those trees. If we water our marriage with the grace and goodness of God, on a regular basis, then when the lightning strikes, and whether it's sexual temptation or f- failed expectations or whatever the problem comes to your marriages, financial burdens and stressors, um, wh- whatever the problem is, every marriage is gonna have lightning strikes. Uh, but, but when your marriage is watered with the gospel, then you're not gonna have the devastating fires that rage through a marriage. When, when your marriage is spiritually dry, that's when the danger happens. The good news is that God's unconditional love for me has created an opportunity for me to have a union with my spouse that I would never see without the gospel in my life. A good marriage is the gospel lived out in real life.